This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the U.S. Army is the nation's largest consumer of space capabilities. I'll talk to Lieutenant General Daniel Karbler. He's the commanding general of the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command about how the Army's dominance on the ground depends on supremacy in the space domain. And in honor of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, we check in with a Bengali chief warrant officer who found the American dream through serving. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Space capabilities have become an integral part of all of our lives. Just look at GPS. But its importance to war fighting has also evolved. Lieutenant General Dan Karbler is the commanding general of the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command. General, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Mimi. Great to be here. I appreciate you taking time to have me on. Start by explaining your mission and how that mission fits within the rest of the Army and the Defense Department. Sure, Mimi. So Space and Missile Defense Command is uniquely postured. I'm the uh, Army Service Component Command to two combatant commands, U.S. Strategic Command out at Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska and U.S. Space Command out in Colorado Springs, Colorado. So just within that, uh, within those two combatant commands, unique perspective. I also provide soldiers to Northern Command that the, the soldiers who operate our ground-based mid-course defense system that provides our missile defense for uh, homeland missile defense. And so within Space and Missile Defense Command, I've got operational forces as well as the capabilities to do concept development and research and development. And that again supports the combat commands as well as the Army. So. For example, with Strategic Command, uh, Admiral Richard and his mission set has global missile defense uh, operations support. And so what Space and Missile Defense Command does is support him in that global missile defense operations support mission that he has. It, it could be uh, anything from where's the next Patriot THAAD battery going to uh, being able to help address global force management issues with our very limited air and missile defense assets. And then with Space Command, I really provide the Army space capabilities to General Dickinson in, in Space Command, and, and we do that with uh, different deployments. We've did it, uh, done it here in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And then again, for General Van Herc with Northern Command, we provide those missile defense soldiers, the, the 300, defending 300 million, as we like to say. And General, you know that during the 20 years of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, space was not really prioritized by the Pentagon. How has the importance of space evolved in warfighting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the department saw the importance of space, and, and, and we've space has always been important. When uh, space fell up underneath U.S. Strategic Command as one of STRATCOM's mission sets, uh, it it uh, the, the focus of space was there. But General Hyten, at the time, who was the STRATCOM commander, would tell you that, and in, even in the best days, space was number three on his priorities because he was responsible for strategic deterrence, nuclear deterrence, and then space. Recognizing that the department uh, understood that and stood up Space Force and Space Command. And sometimes in my discussions, I, I have to untangle those to make sure folks understand the difference between Space Force 
Space Command and Space and Missile Defense Command and Space Force. It, it is a little service. confusing because I wanted to ask you about the, the relationship with Space Force. And you've said this quote, Space Force focuses up, Army space looks down. What does that actually mean? Sure, so the Space Force, they're looking at the strategic on-orbit missions to support you know, the, the Department of Defense and to, to support all the you know, geographic and functional combatant commands. Army space really has to take a look at the tactical fight and what are we doing to support that ground maneuver commander, right? Army soldiers shoot, move, and communicate. So Army space, we enable that, whether that's through precision-guided weapons, uh, providing the deep sensing for targeting, uh, ensuring that our communications links are established, and, and uh, things like navigation, ensuring that uh, we have uh, assured precision navigation and timing for our maneuver forces, again, so that they can do their missions to shoot, move, and communicate. Are there any redundancy, uh, redundancies in those capabilities? I mean, do you really need your own stuff? Yeah, they, they are complementary. Uh, but I wouldn't say that they're redundant. I mean, you take a look at, just rewind the tape 70 years ago when the Army Air Corps turned into the Air Force. And the Army still had to stand up an aviation branch because we had close air support requirements to support those ground forces. Very, very similar in the Army space is what we provide close space support, again, to make sure that those platoons, battalions, brigades have space army space enabled capabilities to support those army specific missions you know multi-domain and joint operations you know bringing air and sea with the ground capabilities together that really can't happen without space yeah absolutely uh, when we look at the you know the multi-domain operations and the multi-domain task force that the army is moving out with and you look at those capabilities, the cyber capabilities, the space capabilities, uh, the non-kinetic and kinetic effects that a multi-domain task force is going to provide in support of multi-domain operations. And then the importance of integrating those effects in both the planning and then synchronizing the effects as we do operations within the multi-domain task force. Uh, you're absolutely right. Space is gonna play a critical role in that. You know, General, we've talked about how important space is to the warfighter. What if you're denied those capabilities through enemy action or for whatever reason? What are you doing to prepare the warfighter to operate in that denied or degraded environment? Sure, it starts with rehearsals. It starts with our training, which then rolls into our readiness. So everything from our uh, CTCs, from our training centers, where whether it's a national training center or our JRTC, we make sure that adversary space capabilities are introduced on the battlefield so those soldiers know the TTPs that they have to use and able to fight through a denied environment. Within our professional military education, whether it's brand new second lieutenants at their basic officer leader course, all the way through to general officers uh, at, the, uh, at our uh, functional, uh, at our land component command uh, course that they take, we ensure that we're training them on what adversary space can do to them and what our uh, counters are to ensure that we are able to operate in that denied, degraded environment. All right, quick pause here and then we'll come back. That's great. Coming next on Government Matters, we'll continue the conversation with Army Lieutenant General Dan Karbler on the Army's use of space. Stay with us.
Welcome back. My guest is Lieutenant General Dan Carbler. He's the Commanding General of the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command. General, let's talk about directed energy lasers. How are they changing short-range air defense? Sure. The Army recognizes the, the need that we have to have to protect our maneuver forces. So those brigade combat teams that are out in the battlefield, right now, uh, the, our ability to protect them from drones and UAVs is of paramount importance. So in addition to our, our Stinger-based platforms that we have to intercept those UAVs that are out there, to engage those UAVs that are out there, we're also looking at directed energy lasers. Uh, pretty exciting on where we're moving out with, with, uh, with directed energy with lasers. Uh, just last month, I was out at White Sands Missile Range uh, watching a test that was ongoing. We've put a 50 kilowatt laser, we've mounted on a striker vehicle, and I watched us engage drones and incoming mortar rounds with that, uh, with that uh, 50 kilowatt laser. And it's just amazing. You, you sit in the striker vehicle, you watch the operators, and it's, uh, it's an Xbox controller like every kid uh, growing up uh, plays with nowadays, and that's how that's what they use to uh, target and do the engagement. So very intuitive to the operator, and as as I was able to see in the test, very effective at getting after again drones and uh, and uh, mortar rounds because part of our mission set isn't just the drones, but we've got to be able to intercept rocket artillery and uh, incoming mortars. Well, I want to ask you about uh, an event in 2020 when there is an Iranian missile attack against Americans at an Iraqi base. Tell us uh, about what happened and the, the missile warning system. Yeah, so our, our Joint Tactical Ground Station, JTAGS, and that's a theater missile warning company. We have four of them throughout the, throughout the globe. Those, that missile early warning detachment was able to detect the incoming Iranian missiles based on overhead satellite uh, feed that they got and when, once they get that indication that the missiles were launched, they're able to immediately provide that missile warning out to theater, in this case, the CENTCOM theater. And so those 16 Iranian missiles that were launched into Iraq, we were able to provide about seven minutes worth of early warning, which then allowed all the soldiers, civilians, sailors, anybody who was in Iraq at the time who, was, who, were, who were threatened by those incoming missiles to take cover. And, and I give our soldiers great credit for why there was no deaths as a result of that Iranian attack. And, and early warning is an important part of passive defense. We, we don't have enough Patriot or Thad interceptors to take care of everything around the world, take care of every single missile threat that could come in. So passive defense, being able to take cover provided by our missile early warning is a critical component of that. Give us an idea of how you're working with international partners and allies and what the benefits are between um, b both with the U.S. and partner nations. Yeah, so one of my, one of my uh, responsibilities on the Joint Functional Component Command for Integrated Missile Defense, and we host a campaign exercise called Nimble Titan. 27 nations uh, through NATO, uh, our, our allies in the Middle East, as well as Indo-Pacific. And that's a, that's a two-year campaign where we bring together all of those countries who have missile defense capabilities, we look at the threat, we look at different scenarios, we talk about the tactics, techniques, procedures, policies, data sharing, the, the, the entire spectrum of the missile defense mission uh, that, that we all share in order to uh, defeat our adversaries. Uh, important dialogue and, and uh, 
I would argue that missile defense is, is truly one of those missions that brings together our allies for the sole purpose of being able to defeat adversary missiles. Uh, widely successful, um, it, it only grows each, uh, every other year that we do this, it, it only grows with additional partner nations who want to be involved in that. Um, so General, in, uh, uh, you, go I'm, ahead. Uh, what would you say is your most urgent or highest priority technical advancement that you're looking for? Yeah, from the space side, I would tell you, we have got to be able to track hypersonic uh, missiles that are coming in. And I, we work with the Missile Defense Agency to identify those requirements because a hi hypersonic missile uh, as it comes in is, is a very tough target for us to track. And in order to intercept it, in order to attribute where it comes from, you have got to be able to track it from, from birth to death of that missile. And so that uh, that's it's very urgent. Missile Defense Agency, I know it's at the top of their priority list to get after uh, addressing that capability. And how are you working with NASA? I was surprised to learn that there's an Army astronaut detachment. We do. We have an Army astronaut detachment down at Johnson Space Center. We have three Army astronauts right now, uh, Colonel Drew Morgan, Colonel Ann McLean, and Lieutenant Colonel Frank Rubio. They are, they are awesome ambassadors for the Army to NASA. Uh, Frank and Ann are both in the uh, Artemis missions right now, so we, we remain hopeful that uh, one of those uh, officers or both of them will get to uh, be boots on the moon here and uh, couldn't be prouder of what our Army astronauts bring to the program. They are, they are an outsized strategic impact uh, for the Army. As a matter of fact, when Drew Morgan was aboard the International Space Station, he, he enlisted into the Army uh, north of 800 young civilians who came into the Army. And I'll guarantee that every one of those now soldiers, when they came to the Army, will always remember that they were brought into the Army by an Army astronaut on the International Space Station. And your organization is deployed across 11 time zones, so I can't even imagine how you have a staff meeting, but that'll be for another discussion. General, thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks, Mimi. As we say, the sun never sets on SNDC, and we do secure the high ground. Coming up on Government Matters, achieving the American dream by serving in the Army. Chief Warrant Officer 5, Mohammed Badal, joins me. We'll be right back. Immigrating from Bangladesh at the age of 19, my guest decided to join the Army to learn some job skills. 25 years later, he's still there and loving it. Chief Warrant Officer 5 Mohammed Badal is the chief of the Army's Contingency Construction and Operational Energy Branch. Mohammed, welcome to the program. Thank you, ma'am. Pleasure to be here. You know, Chief Warrant Officers make up less than 3% of the, the total of the U.S. Army. What, start by telling us what is a Chief Warrant Officer. So chief warrant officers are the subject matter experts of the army. So they are the special, they have, hold the specialty of different skills that army requires. Um, they are the advisors for the senior, senior commanders, uh, leaders in our army. Uh, in, currently in, the, um, uh, in our army, we have 67 specialties that we hold. Uh, in a, in and a it's this way. weird kind of in between. It's not enlisted and it's not the officer corps. Right. So we, we we are commissioned and uh, chief warrant officer two level, but we are also commissioned officers, and they're between uh, the non-commissioned officers and the commissioned officers. So, Mohammed, before we talk about your personal journey, tell us about the work that you do um, in the contingency construction and operational energy. 
So you know, as engineers, uh, we do impactful things. We anything we do have to, have to touch the quality of life, right? So things we do touch the quality of life of our soldiers, our families. Um, so for us as engineers, uh, with the core of engineers, we do. Uh, currently, um, we're providing standard design uh, for uh, indigenous material, local material to provide. Uh, uh, I would say barracks. Uh, and living quarters for our soldiers in a, in a contingency environment, right? And then uh, with the uh, Army has huge uh, mission right now to tackle the climate change and what it means. This is a very big issue because it impacts uh, national security at the end. That, that's right. What are you doing? What are the innovative things that you're doing on that front? So, so, so as engineers, we're always trying to look at our future. What does that mean? What does that uh, future operating environment means? And what engineering solutions can help? So our, uh, our biggest target is using engineering solutions to lower the greenhouse gas and then also use materials that engineering design that help with the greenhouse gas, right? Uh, that can, uh, so literally like using the, leveraging the technology and helping, helping our nation to tackle this climate change. So you were 19 years old when you came to this country through the diversity visa program. How much English did you know? How much education did you have? So at 19, you know, we, in Bangladeshi education system, they give you the foundational English, right? So I had just a little bit of foundation in English, but we don't really practice, right? So uh, I was not fluent, right? Uh, but I was competent that I, I could practice a new language. At, the, at 19, coming here in the diversity visa program, I, I literally won a lottery, right, to get here. So with the diversity visa program, when I came here, uh, uh, joining the army, what really helped me, give me the, what gave me the culture of fluency uh, into the English language. But why did you think of the army? Because that's not a typical path for this, uh, you know, a young immigrant coming from East Asia. Right. So I, I was a fan of the military. I, I think I, the most, uh, the the best way to think about it, I was in a new country, right, and I was looking for a way to provide a solid foundation and and a, and a career. And that also gives me a certain sense of service, right? So in, in my mind, uh, military is a, was a way to go, and I was a big fan of being an engineer. Uh, my dad was an engineer, so I was like, okay, uh, I want to be an engineer soldier in the, in the Army. So. so what were your expectations going in, and did the Army meet those expectations? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, so Army has given me, I, I call it a... Uh, a way of life, right? Army is it's a culture itself. It has given me a family. It has given me a career. It has given me education. Uh, I, who I am today is, is a product of the Army, right? So. But, Mohammed, did you ever feel like an outsider, like you didn't belong? You know, there's not a lot of Bangladeshi Americans in the U.S. Army. So, so very important question, right? I think I, I joined the Army as an enlisted soldier. I lived in the barracks where, where I would say more exciting things were happening, right? Uh, so. You talk about experiencing culture at the deepest level, right? So that kind of gave me the foundation and never made me feel like I was, I was an outsider. Because these young, young men and women from around the country, they come together and they become a family. And I became part of the family immediately. So what do you tell young people that are maybe coming from different countries, they're immigrating to the U.S., or maybe their, their parents are from different countries? What do you tell them? So I would say, um, okay. So army is a, is a is a disciplined life, right? So what army does is uh, helps you uh, put your life into a positive direction, 
So if you're looking for uh, to change into a positive direction, it doesn't matter if you're immigrant or, uh, or uh, born here and raised here. It will help you provide that positive direction you're looking for. And I think uh, besides the positive direction, it gives you physical fitness, it gives you a career, um, it, it gives you uh, the foundation for character, it gives you the values you need to be successful as a human being. I, I think those, those things matter as you, as you mold young men into becoming leaders, right? And, and I, I promise you, if you join the Army, they will make sure you become a leader in this formation. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Nice to talk to you, Mohammed. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me today. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it 
because we use the artificial intelligence to to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.